Welcome to Just Theory. In this episode, we are speaking with Alison Young, Sir David Williams Professor of Public Law at Cambridge University and a Fellow of Robinson College. Her main interest is constitutional theory, particularly dialogue theory, where she draws comparisons between different means of protecting human rights. We discuss the importance of popular legal education, as well as Professor Young's current research project in legal methodology. We talk about the model theoretic approach in constitutional law and the need for constant readiness to revise our own assumptions. So, without further ado, I now present you episode 7 on the legal ways of thinking. And then the second most awkward part is when we just sit here in awkward silence after, you know, talking for a good three minutes. Yeah, it's, it's always the way. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here with Professor Alison Young. Uh, welcome. We are absolutely delighted to have you here. Um, before we move on to discuss your work, I was wondering if we could start, as we usually do, with a, a brief question about your background in academia, why you decided to pursue an academic career and why do you decided to stay? Okay, well, thank you first both to Alexandra and Emilia for inviting me. It's uh, really kind of you to do so. Um, it's hard to kind of track. I never sort of sat down and thought, yes, I definitely want to become an academic and this is how I'm going to do it. So I think like most academics, you sort of drift into becoming an academic, if that makes sense. So normally when people ask me why am I an academic, I have one person who I blame. And the person that I blame is David Feldman. Um, so David Feldman was a professor at the University of Birmingham when I was doing my undergraduate there. And um, he taught me jurisprudence. And that was the kind of first time in which I got introduced to aspects of legal theory, and not just thinking about law in terms of practicalities, case law, legislation, but actually trying to take a step back and think, why is it there? What is law doing? What's its purpose? What's its aims? And so those kinds of discussions started getting me to think a little bit more about theory rather than just case law. And I was thinking about applying for masters before going on to, to do the classic, let's go and get my training contract and become a solicitor and earn lots of money in the city. And um, David Feldman was happily writing master's references for me. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, you're not a solicitor, you're an academic. And that question was the first thing that actually got me thinking about, well, is this something I want to do? And it was only really when I was doing the BCL in Oxford that I got a chance to think more about legal theory. So I did the jurisprudence course on the BCL. And I also did things like comparative human rights. But I started to think a little bit more about Am I more interested in these questions than I am in practical questions and advising individuals about how to apply the law? And by doing work on the BCL and then thinking about, did I want to do a PhD? I kept delaying my training contract until eventually I just gave in and said, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to work in this lovely law firm of yours, which I'm sure is wonderful. Instead, I'm, I'm going to become an academic. And I think it was partly that and also picking up bits of teaching that in the end made me realize that actually I enjoyed the teaching. I like the theory. I like the concepts much more than trying to advise people on practical outcomes. 
Um, I also thought I'd be useless as a lawyer. I'd be too busy going, what an interesting question. Let me just go and unpack it and think of how to explain it in a million different ways. When all they really wanted was, can I sue them or not? <laughs> You'd be an excellent lawyer because the billable hours that you would accrue. <laughs> I'd be a rich lawyer, but I think yeah. I'd be sacked fairly quickly as they realised that I'd, I'd only seen one client in three years. <laughs> it is incredible that you picked on this aspect of your of your. Um, decision to become an academic mm. this commitment to deliberation and commitment to unpacking difficult questions mm. because it's mm. very very uh, present in both of the papers which you submitted to us in fact the overarching theme both <laughs> in the constitutional um, methodology paper and the populism mm. paper is emphasis on dialogue emphasis on mm. deliberation emphasis mm. of analysis could you tell us something about uh, Am I correct in, ide mm -hmm. in identifying this as a key theme running throughout your work? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've, I kind of haven't really thought about key themes, if that makes sense. I tend to get interested in various things, but I think, I think you're right that one thing I do keep coming back to is the importance of dialogue in a specific way, if that makes sense. So it's all about making sure that you have dialogue that understands concepts where you're not talking at cross purposes and that does take a step back and isn't just about being informed in the sense of having correct knowledge having understanding but also is respectful of the other point of view so it's more about so i guess it is coming back to this idea ideal of dialogue and thinking about how you interact in a way that makes those interactives productive so I guess, yes, there is that overarching theme that runs through quite a lot of, of the work. But yeah, it's amazing how others read your work and spot themes and you have no <laughs> idea they're there. So I can you. point out the second one, too, um, because when <laughs> okay. you mentioned when you mentioned what you mentioned about talking about uh, mm. considering practice as opposed to you know academic work and, and going mm. through that process uh, in the paper about methodology i it made me think that this tension between embracing theory and trying to apply theory in practice yeah. and this chasm that exists in academia now that you're either an empirical researcher yeah or you're a theorist and if mm. you're a theorist then all of your theories none of your theories can be applied in practice and if you're an empirical scientist then what do you know about theory and I wonder if this is something that drew you to work on methodology. Um, it did, actually. I think it was, so I was drawn to think about methodology, um, partly because um, after my first book, one of the criticism, criticisms of the book was, oh, you're just another natural lawyer, or you're just another legal positivist. And I just didn't think, well, you know, I couldn't be both another natural lawyer and another legal positivist. So something odd was, was going on in that particular situation. But it also got me thinking very much about trying to cross the divide, if that makes sense, between theory and application. And I think a lot of what goes on in constitutional theory is precisely that. You need to understand the background sort of political theory, the background legal principles, the background constitutional theory, but it doesn't really start to make sense until you start thinking about applying it to practical problems. And I've always been someone who has tried to straddle that divide, if that makes sense, to think about, I want my work to be informed by theory, but I'm, I find it very difficult to do things that are just purely abstract. I also want to think about how it applies in particular situations. I think that's what drew me to thinking about 
particularly when I was working on my second book, well, what am I doing? Am I trying to come up with some kind of ideal constitution I want everyone to follow? Well, no, not really. Am I just trying to describe what's going on? Well, no, I think I'm trying to get the interactions between the two. And I think that's what drew me to think more about how methodology works in constitutional theory. And it drew me towards this understanding of model theoretic approaches. Perhaps um, I'm reading too much <laughs> into this, but, I, uh, but one impression I had uh, after reading your work was that your ambition was very much uh, similar to that of Hannah Arendt, who wanted to understand the world mm. above all and mm. who wanted yeah. to explain it so mm. and not avoid simplification. Um, mm. At the same time, uh, she also uh, had a strong commitment to um, certain... Um, moral values which are also yeah. prominent in your work am i am i again guessing <laughs> guessing guessing what, what what's your what's your moral well, compass is well <laughs> hang on a minute just just to prove you're not guessing you just wait, wait this this is me at my desk in, at home okay so this yeah. is my home office and i'm just hiding don't worry i'll be back because this <laughs> there you are does that does that answer your question Emilia <laughs> yes yes it does it does <laughs> Alexandra's about to be same I think so <laughs> you see I'm... we've got matching coffee look, look. Where, is, where is mine mine we're is going to look for our coffee now aren't we this is going to look a terrible podcast as we all disappeared to find a book <laughs> yeah I was about to go yes, as well she, because she I, do have, <laughs> I do have the, I do have that copy as well but I just think <laughs> I cannot I cannot spot it at the moment <laughs> but, uh, but I would be I would be with you just uh, bringing this book yeah. um but apart from uh, all of us being keen readers of Hannah Arendt <laughs> uh, it appears that we share uh, her commitment mm -hmm. to understanding yeah. the world to yes. um, avoiding oversimplifications um, and this is present um, again mm -hmm. in both papers in the paper mm -hmm. on populism you mm. identify populism um, as um, the force which uh, rejects those values, uh, rejects that mm. commitment mm. to understanding mm. and, and, and rational, mm. rational analysis. Mm. Um, and in constitutional methodology paper, it, ap appear, it appears to me um, that you also are seeking to find uh, an effective uh, rational mm. analysis that takes mm. into account yeah. all the perspectives um, yeah. instead of simplifying and reducing the world. Mm to mm. one uh, correct yeah. vision. Yeah. Again, um, am I? <laughs> am I, Amelia, you're oh, just yeah. throwing oh, intuitions yeah, no, out there. <laughs> I, I need you on a daily basis, Amelia. This is great. Uh, but, no, but you're right that it is, I think there are all these things that you are aware of that you aren't necessarily aware of coming through in your work, if that makes sense. So I never kind of say up front, this is what I'm trying to do. But it is what I'm trying to do. And I think, one of the things I find quite frustrating is this idea that somehow to communicate more broadly, you need to dumb down and you need to oversimplify it to such an extent that, that what you're saying almost becomes trite and becomes pointless. And I think there's a different danger with constitutional theory and theorists in some senses, in that sometimes we think obfuscation is a great sign of genius. So the more complex I make it and the more complex wonderful you know lovely terminology I put in there clearly the more intelligent it actually is and, and for me neither of those work you need to be able to go understand the terminology but you need to understand it and explain it in a way that someone who hasn't read that 
will understand it. And often that does require to think about practical applications, interesting examples, and but never to dumb it down. Explain it clearly, but show what is really, I think in some sense, it's almost like lifting the veil, show that these theories are there, they're out there, they could be underpinning what's going on, but never dumb it down and never in some sense dictate what I want the reader to conclude at the end of it, if that makes sense. Mm. I want the reader to think, I want them to understand, and I want them to be persuaded by my arguments, of course, but I don't want them to go away and say, well, you know, unless you've got values A, B and C, somehow this is terrible. I want them to understand what these values are, work mm. out for themselves whether they accept them, and if not, why not? I wonder. I wonder if this is uh, this is one of the mm -hmm. points which uh, myself and Alexandra uh, picked on before uh, our interview mm -hmm. when we were looking at your work. Much mm -hmm. of uh, dialogic and um, dialogic philosophies or philosophies mm -hmm. on the liberation liberal mm -hmm. uh, approaches in particular do a focus on complexity but perhaps there are some mm. matters that uh, are um, do not have that complexity behind it yeah. Hannah Arendt picked mm. on this when she was sp yeah. speaking about banality of evil yeah. uh, when we look about mm. look at the current um, invasion in the Ukraine perhaps yeah. uh, there is not much yeah. to deliberate to assess <laughs> the matter as yeah. inherently yeah. wrong uh, yeah. what's what's your thoughts are the limits to deliberative uh, democracy and to deliberation and to dialogue perhaps some things are black and white perhaps some things are not inherently difficult mm. Mm. I think you're right there are I mean obviously the, the war in Ukraine is, is a clear point um but I think there are some things that are black and white but I think sometimes we will overcomplicate things and not necessarily see things for what they are and I think that is a danger sometimes in trying to unpack these concepts. So to, to take it back to us understandings of, of populism, there's, there are complexities about the extent to which understandings of populism, what it is, where it comes from, and then trying to map that onto what we mean by liberal constitutionalism and what are the values of constitutionalism. And these are complex interrelationships, but at the same time, there's a need to take a step back and say, well, these aspects of it do harm democracy. And we need to be aware of, it's all very well saying we can have a populist movement that is trying to say, well, this particular group in society has been unrepresented for a long time. And it's time for us to draw that to, to the attention of the elites and institutions so that these views are not ignored. That's great. But once you start saying, and these views are the only view of the people and nothing else is there. And once you start ignoring rational deliberation and just looking at rhetoric, and once you start divorcing yourself from the reality of what those people want and start filtering it through as well, they obviously want these outcomes because I found all knowledge, the populist leader, I'm fully aware that these are the outcomes they want. Those are danger signs. And I think you can't be gray about those issues they are black and white mm. it's really interesting uh what you just said because this is a theme that we touched upon in a previous mm -hmm. episode one of the previous episodes where we talked about the importance of deliberation in mm -hmm. uh, what we would call you know bystanders average yeah. men and women uh, mm. type people uh, in their mm. approach to law so law seems to veil itself in this 
I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost <laughs> like you're a, you know, you're a priestess of some kind of a religion, right? Because you have those <laughs> secrets. It's almost described as, oh, people who make the law or people who judge are those people who mm -hmm. specialize in it, right? So mm -hmm. all the folk, normal people, you just don't understand. So when yeah. a judgment is being issued, mm. there is a certain line of reasoning that's presented and you mm -hmm. either follow it, you know, some people, some parties and fractions will say one thing, other parties and mm -hmm. fractions will say others. And it mm. seems to me like those populist notions of chasing simple ideas and, and promoting mm. simplification of, of very complex mm. concepts, uh, mm. both, part, both parties are really guilty of it and both sides of the political spectrum are really guilty mm. of it. Yeah. So I really do wonder how democracy can survive this, because, of course, if you are split along mm -hmm. what's happening, let's say, in the US, right, when you're split yeah. almost mm -hmm. literally 50 50, mm -hmm. then how how can we get out of it and mm -hmm. how can we present the value of deliberation when it doesn't bear any result in the end, when you just, you yeah. know, people just kind of go, oh, I guess we're split along those lines and mm -hmm. What do we do with it now? Hmm. Good question. I, I wish I wish I knew the answer. I, I'm not necessarily sure how we can promote values of, of dialogue and deliberation in some senses. But I think what is important is trying to ensure that the electorate is informed enough to be able to take part in these deliberations. So a project I've been working on at the moment with Mark Elliott is a project called Constitutional Law, Law Matters. And it's nothing to do with theory. So this is, this is about as far removed from legal theory as you can get. And so there we have a website, which I, I'm willing to plug if, if, if push. Um, but the aim of that project is public education. And this stemmed partly from um, concerns about what I've been doing in my theory research and partly because someone was willing to throw money at you so you know someone's going to give you money to do something you, you, and, it, and it matches with what you want to do this is fantastic but um so as well as being a constitutional theorist I'm a mum and so I've seen my daughter go through um the standard state education system in the UK and the only reason she knows anything about how the UK constitution works is because she has to listen to her boring old mum natter on about it there's nothing really taught generally about what the constitution is, what constitutional values are, what will make a good constitution, what might make a bad constitution, why we want to protect human rights, why we think democracy is a good idea. And I think unless you equip citizens in any country to understand what these values are and to be able to liberate and debate them, then you have the danger of complete polarization because it's all too easy to just fall into two camps and not necessarily take it any further if that makes sense so it's it's not i think it's partly about equipping and it's not necessarily just about pushing the value of dialogue it's also about pushing the value of plurality and diversity that diversity is good that it, it's it's great that within a particular group of students I'm teaching, there can be an array of political views, there can be an array of social backgrounds, there can be an array of genders, there can be an array of sexual orientations, there can be an array of religions. And that's great, because the more there is an understanding that you can be diverse, but also be unified in wanting 
to have a system that recognizes that diversity, I think the better. I think it's in some senses, it's understanding the importance and value of diversity and informed dialogue that I try and push. Whether I'm just a lovely ancient academic sat in her lovely ivory tower with wonderful ideals that will get nowhere, I, I don't really know. But I think for me, there's a real value and in a long sense, a responsibility on academics, even those involved in legal theory, to think about how we do that and how we promote these values. Before we move on, Amelia, I just oh, want to I just want to pop in just a, a very quick thought. What you said there. So I have a niece who is around mm -hmm. the age of, you know, early adolescence. Yeah. And I was, remember speaking to my parents about her and, and thinking, oh, it's really strange because when I was her age, we, we all and Amelia, I'm sure you, you share the sentiment. Mm -hmm. We would fight as in we would have arguments with people. It wouldn't yeah. be just oh, I assigned to this particular school of thought on TikTok or school mm. of thought mm. on Instagram, yeah. we would be yeah. encouraged to think independently. Mm. And I think mm. a lot of it, for one reason or another, is, is, mm. is has dissipated, but yeah. especially in relation to things like law, because of course law yeah. to people sounds like, you know, you go to a judge and you end up in prison for something. Like it's not, yeah. nobody <laughs> thinks about public law and goes, Oh yeah, sure. I know what it is. Like when I was when I started my undergrad, I was like, "What is public law?" I mean, <laughs> good question. So I'm glad it wasn't just me. <laughs> exactly right. So I wonder how much of I wonder how much of that can be addressed just by education and how creative we need to get. Uh, mm. But I'll let Amelia ask her question because it was obviously yeah. very. <laughs> no, no, actually, I, I didn't want to move on yet. I wanted to go back to the, both, the, both points you you made. Uh, just briefly to respond to Alexandra. Okay, uh, I, I definitely have a very strong experience of disagreement because I have a twin sister, and throughout <laughs> our life we did nothing but argue about anything. <laughs> for just as a matter of principle disagreeing so yes this is this is my my uh, experience of my I mean, this is how this youth. podcast came about come on like this is exactly <laughs> how this podcast came about because i would call Amelia and i'd be like oh i've seen this paper and it really agitates my analytic mind and Amelia would be like but according to continental philosophy this is all nonsense <laughs> uh, but this this is actually the point which I was trying to raise in, initially. Um, when you talk about public education and projects mm -hmm. of the kind that that mm -hmm. you that you just described, a, an argument which is frequently made mm -hmm. is that this um, liberal commitment to education uh, is elitist in nature, yeah. and that you want to mm -hmm. teach others what is right and what is wrong, what is the right way mm -hmm. of seeing the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you say? Mm -hmm. How would you respond okay. to those who would accuse your project of mm -hmm. being elitist and okay. uh, trying to, you know, um, mm -hmm. teach uh, others uh, how okay. to understand and view the world? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll try. So, so one <laughs> is based on where I come from on my own sort of practical experiences and the other is sort of based on, on what I think is, is a kind of misunderstanding of what you mean by elitism. So um, I'll start with the second one. So I think often we see elitism as, as, as a bad thing, as if it's authoritarian, as if it's a, someone with power going to someone without power and say, hello, I'm a professor, here is my view, now you will follow it. And, 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 and sort of that's the kind of vision we have of elitism. But we don't have a problem with things like 
if I want to learn to be a great footballer, it'd be a really good idea to go and learn from someone who's a really great footballer. And we don't think that's terribly elitist. Look at that elitist footballer telling me off for, frankly, being useless at football. Nor would we say, uh, look at that elitist plumber being really condescending to this person who knows next to nothing about plumbing and was desperately trying to repair her washing machine during COVID. <laughs> Whilst using we say, very colourful language when things didn't necessarily go right. So it's for some reason we think that if your particular skill is academic, it's elitist but we don't necessarily think it with regard to other skills. I think sometimes we need to take a step back and say, well, if I am explaining to, in to individuals what these ideas are, it can be a tool of empowerment in exactly the same way that a footballer teaching sharing footballing skills or a plumber sharing plumbing skills can be the same thing. So I think we need to think carefully about what you're doing. And yes, you have to understand that it comes with this history and backdrop of someone in authority telling you what to think. But I think it's explaining very clearly, I'm not doing that. I just have a skill in the same way that a plumber or a footballer has a skill. It's just that my skill is trying to explain to you some of these things that I've learned in order to empower you to think about them. My practical point is that's my background. I am working class. I didn't go to a independent school. I didn't go to somewhere where I was trained to be elitist. In fact, the school I went to didn't like elitism to such an extent that I got given detention. Are you ready for this? Uh, so I'm, I'm ancient. And um, so um, when I grew up, there were these things called youth training schemes, which is where when you left school at 16, you were, you were you know, if you were from my background, you would go and do a youth training scheme and train to be a plumber or a whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just I wanted to go to university. So instead of going to my allotted time to the youth training scheme to pick my youth training scheme to go to, I went to a double maths lesson because I thought that was much more likely to get me to get my O-levels so I could then go on and go to university, do my A-levels and go to university. I got detention for being elitist. Um, which I thought was hilariously funny. So, <laughs> did you live in communist <laughs> Poland by any chance? Because that sounds I, like this is not communist Poland. This, this is Yorkshire. <laughs> this is not 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 socialist. Um, so we we often joke that South Yorkshire is is you know the the People's Republic of South Yorkshire. Uh, so very much you know socialist and left wing leaning, but not communist. Um, yeah. So um, and it was because it's remarkable. Where I did, yeah. It is, it is, it's great, it's a, it's a wonderful story. It is absolutely true. It's my, the, my one detention for being elitist, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> but it, it comes from that, again, that, that understanding. So I understand that that is how it can be perceived. But mm. I don't, you know, I come from the background that gets that, if that makes sense. And I think sometimes that makes it easier for me to hopefully explain to people and say, well, I get this, I'm not trying to be mm. domineering I'm not trying to say you must only think in this way and I, I hope that means it's easier for me to communicate and I hope it means that people realize that when I just say it's a skill it, that's exactly what I mean I don't think it's any more valuable than other types mm. of skills you just have different skills yeah the, the reason why I mentioned this this elitism point is because mm. much of the failure of modern liberalism and the emergence mm. of populism was sometimes attributed 
to yeah. this idea that yeah. uh, it was liberal thinkers yeah. themselves yeah. who yeah. failed to or who lost touch mm. with yeah. with an average person mm -hmm. with with, yeah. with, the, with the common people mm. so yeah. to say and, and understanding their um mm. their ideas and um mm. seeing them as equals yeah so that's, that's i think that's true and i i, I can see that definitely mm. um so on this point perhaps we could unpack the populism paper a little <laughs> bit more um and uh, the the leading uh, the leading theme or the lead the, the core argument which you are making there that um you take as your case study a Brexit referendum and the Scottish referendum, mm. comparing them as uh, being informed uh, by a very different um, mm. approaches to uh, democracy and how democracy mm. can be done and how deliberation um, and so or how referendum can be mm. um, helpful in achieving mm. um, democratic democratic goals. So could you tell mm. us a little bit more about what it is that you do in this paper? What's your aims mm -hmm. uh, there? Okay, thank you. So the the aim of the paper really is to try, as you said, to unpack a little bit about populism and try and think about what are triggers for aspects of populism and how we can think about the dangers and try and avoid the dangers. So one of the possible um, triggers of aspects of populism is boundary issues. So this understanding of where do you find your political community? So with regard to Brexit, you have the boundary issue of, is the UK distinct and unique, and so shouldn't be part of Europe, or does it have similar um, values so that it's such that it should be part of Europe? So it's a boundary issue in that sense. When we think about devolution, the boundary issue is how far Scotland should be an independent political entity, a different nation, and how far it should be part of the UK. And these boundary issues are not you can't determine them fully rationally, if, if that makes sense. So there's an emotional commitment to them as well, which is what makes them so uh, complex in some ways and, and, and which can lead to further problems of populism. What's interesting about the two referendums is, is how they went about doing what they did, if that makes sense. So in Scotland, there's kind of, there was much more public deliberation going on there was much more discussions about what would it mean to be independent, what the consequences would be. And one other interesting development was they moved the voting age. So 16 year olds could vote, which meant of course, as soon as you get 16 and 17 year olds voting, then you start to get educational establishments thinking, well, we're gonna have to have these debates as well because we've got um, pupils in our schools who are going to be voting on this issue, who are interested and want to be informed. And so there was much more of trying to put different arguments and deliberations and debates. If you contrast that to Brexit, um, Brexit was almost like a sort of, it was almost as if they assumed, well, we know what the outcome is going to be. We'll just put the question that we'll, we'll get the outcome. We don't have to worry. And that wasn't the same a sort of balanced discussion, if that makes sense. And so instead, what you got was a discussion that started to polarize and it didn't help that the question itself wasn't really one that had a yes no answer it's or at least not it, it was a yes no of do you want to leave but then you had to think about well if you're going to leave how do you want to leave 
what form of future relationship do you want? And somehow all those questions got merged into yes, no, and then got hijacked into, well, we've had a close vote, but they majority was yes. So it means now all the people want to leave and it started to homogenize. And I think the lack of real deliberation and debate sort of underpinned that. And I, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a mom, I have a daughter, she's 19 now. So she was um, not able to vote in the Brexit referendum. She wasn't old enough, but was interested in what was going on. And we found a really old program on the BBC that was discussing the 1975 referendum on Europe. And there were these, yes, elitist members discussing the ins and outs and pros and cons. And my daughter just looked at me and said, well, where's that now? Why have we not got the same kind of engagement and deliberation? So being a mum, I took her along to a speech being given by um, Dame Shirley Williams that was trying to deliberate in this way. But they're few and far between and they were organised by universities and you had to know where they were. There wasn't the same general public engagement. And it's that that I was trying to draw on to think about well, when will a referendum lead to homogenization and the dangerous side of populism and when can a referendum actually help further deliberation and democracy and that's sort of what I one aspect that I was thinking of in that paper. Mm. I was uh, wondering when we're dealing I, I appreciate the complexity of the issues involved in Brexit mm. how and when and it, what the mode of, of uh, Brexit is going to be are all complex matter. But ultimately mm. the question whether or not to leave was mm. a yes or no uh, question. So I wonder mm. when we're dealing with inherently complex matters and those that mm. will never have a black and white answer because, because mm. this is unlike Putin's invasion in Ukraine where vast majority of the world will um, condemn that action as yeah. inherently wrong. Mm. Here, we do not really have a right or wrong answer. Mm. So we have mm. no choice but to decide uh, on uh, yes uh, or no. Um, mm. So I wonder what's the end or limits of deliberation and deliberative, mm. um, deliberative uh, liberalism, so to say. Mm. And to bring yeah. it back from, from the realm of politics, which we always end up in. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, wonder if we can, I wonder if we can tie it up as well with uh, what's happening in a court, right? Because the mm. court is facing Mm. very similar questions and you know the both mm. our cases are great examples mm. of uh, you do wrong if you do a and you do wrong if you do b it just depends <laughs> on the perspective yeah. you know there is no way out um mm. and i wonder as amelia suggested uh, as amelia's question kind of directs us towards mm. are there really the limits when are we supposed to say mm -hmm. okay that's enough you know yeah this is what we're doing yeah get on with it Okay, Ooh, lo lots to think about there. I'll try and unpack it and deal with them separately. So I, I will throw at you a, a, a semi-apology for going into politics. Um, uh, as we were joking beforehand, um, good constitutional theory has to be informed by political theory and good constitutional theory has to be able to apply itself to what's going on. So that, that's my excuse. And for that's the good, and that's the I'm good sticking bit. with it. And that's I'm the sticking good. with that. <laughs> That's, a, that's, that's my excuse soundbite. That's um, why people are still listening. <laughs> um, I think, um, so to try and sort of unpack the different sort of things that are coming through from your questions. Um, 
when should you stop deliberating? Okay, when should we just say, look, there's no argument here. It's obviously yes or no. And it's the only kind of concept we can use in some sense is what we call contestability. So is it reasonable to have this disagreement, which is a wonderful legal term. Yeah, is there reasonable disagreement? We love reasonable in law because it can be anything and everything. And it's, it's a slippery thing and it's very difficult, but it's, it's trying to get at something important and crucial. There are mm. some things it's reasonable to disagree about. There are some things that it's not. And it's very easy sometimes to think that because there are some things that are contestable, everything is contestable. And so therefore it becomes a slippery slope. So it's things like um, right to life, for example. So we'd look at something like the right to life and we'd say, well, some aspects of the right to life can be contestable. So when you're thinking about abortion issues, it can be very difficult to know precisely legally how you're going to regulate abortion. We'll all say, well, we need to think about the right to life. We also need to think about aspects of choice because this is a woman's body and they need to take account of women's autonomy. But where you draw the line and how you draw the line, there'll be reasonable disagreement about it. But that doesn't mean to say there can be reasonable disagreement about randomly shooting people for no purpose. Mm. And, it's, and it's trying to recognise in some sense that there are some things it's reasonable to disagree about. There are some things that are not. I'd love to be able to provide you a wonderful list, but I can't, which is one of the nightmares of, of, of thinking about the ins and outs of when deliberation does and does, does not stop. And that's why it becomes so complex to come up with where the limits are and when further deliberation can help and understand these things. And it's, it's because I'm stuck between, I don't think there is always a one objectively right answer to absolutely everything that can be found. But I also don't think we're in a situation where everything is up for grabs. And the best I can come up with is contestability as my way of trying to think it through. And often we understand it through practical applications. It's very difficult to understand the abstract. So that's the best I can do, I'm afraid, at trying to give you a cutoff point mm. on when it is and it's not reasonable. But when, when deliberation should stop. <laughs> I, I suppose what we can also do is try to eliminate what should not be a part of yeah, deliberative exactly. process. Exactly. Let's say, exactly. uh, let's say mm. forms of manipulation, um, yes. forms, mm. of, uh, forms of um, rhetoric as opposed yeah. to genuine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. And, that's, and that's exactly, and that, that's not in terms of subject matter, that's more what isn't really deliberation, if that makes sense. It doesn't count as, as rational deliberation. It counts as manipulation, it, it counts as incitement, it, it counts, it, it's, or it's speech that is trying to silence a particular group in society, for example, then those don't add to the debate and to the deliberation. So that's that's the kind of, you're right, there's, there's those aspects as well. And ultimately when you're designing the constitution, it's not gonna be perfect and you need to stop. There are practical reasons for stopping deliberation as well. So if you want to deliberate and deliberate whether you should do something in response to the war in Ukraine, it's too late. Do you see what I mean? You have to act quickly in those kinds of circumstances. So sometimes you just need authoritative determinations because mm. the situation demands an authoritative resolution quickly. And so some things in, in then would not be suited for deliberation as well. So there, there are those aspects to it. So I think anything else on that before I move on to the next? You can see I'm unpacking already. <laughs> 
I will, I will, I, I don't want to step in and interrupt your train of thought. <laughs> Uh, but one thing that I will just put a pin on is uh, thinking about research paradigms. And I had this uh, little thought experiment that I did a while ago um, when I had a discussion with a social scientist uh, who said, oh, what do you mean in law you don't do research paradigms? How do you guys communicate? And I kind of went, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, if you're trying to argue for a from a pragmatist perspective, right, or against somebody in a positivist account, or, uh, or you know, in a critical against subjective, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a different language. It's like different rules of the game. Mm -hmm. So you can deliberate mm -hmm. all you want, yeah, but you're not going to agree because you don't agree on the nature of reality. You don't agree on you know mm -hmm. the, the yeah yeah no the nature of knowledge, right? So. I wonder if if there's just not enough of that, if we just don't set out mm. the rules of the deliberation <laughs> enough. What are your what are your priorities? What it is what is it that you're actually trying to achieve and what are your uh, underlying assumptions? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. we start arguing with people before we start deliberating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I can pick up on that and then I'll go back to your court point if that's okay. So um because I think that's really interesting and, and it's one of the things that that um got me thinking about model theoretic because I think in a lot of public law discussions we, we you're right we haven't thought about research paradigms in that sense we'll, we'll sometimes think about it in terms of schools of thought and then we'll become very divisive so in public law is it are you a political constitutionalist or are you a legal constitutionalist to which my answer is I'm neither because no one is purely one or the other um but it's we like to form these paradigms and sometimes we talk at cross purposes and part of what I wanted to think about in, in model theoretic approaches is being much more upfront about that that recognizing that when you're coming up with a model which is I guess in a sense is like a research paradigm but it's, it's not fully like that but it, it's got aspects of it what you're trying to do is being upfront about well what are some what factual assumptions does this model rest on and are they there and you're also trying to be much more upfront about, well, what values do I think my model is going to promote? And why do I think they're valuable? And I think the more you're upfront about that, the more you can stop this aspect of talking across purposes. And I think it's okay to say, well, you would argue that because you value deliberation, but I don't value deliberation. So actually I don't think this would be a good idea. I think if you're upfront about why that is, or you, know, you would say that because you think this is the world works in this way. But actually, here's some evidence that shows it doesn't work in this way. So you need to go and rethink about how your argument works. I think we get quite lazy in legal thought sometimes. And we don't, we aren't necessarily upfront about the assumptions on which our theory is, is resting and testing to make sure they're really there, or upfront about what values are underpinning our research. And I think sometimes you're right, we, we do get a bit lazy. So yeah. Perhaps if I try may... to make me yes, lazy, we're going back to this now, aren't we? Carry on. <laughs> can, can I just? I, I, I keep trying. I keep no, trying. No, before, before before you go there, uh, I just wanted to, so to help our uh, our viewers to follow the conversation. Mm -hmm. If you could tell us uh, what is the um, model the theoretic, model theoretic approach. approach, I will try my best because it's it's it, it's not easy to explain. So I will try. So it it comes from science. It's the best way of thinking about it. So. Often we think of science as being, it's purely empirical and here's a little scientist, 
in my lab, doing little experiments and telling what the outcomes are. But scientists are not just doing that. Scientists first will think of a hypothesis or a theory that that's kind of there in the background. And they have some kind of model or understanding and they go away and they carry out experiments. So they see what the outcome of the experiment is and they'll either change the experiment because he didn't prove what they wanted or they'll change their theory because the experiment didn't prove what they wanted. And this is kind of the nub of what's going on in model theoretic approaches. So what you're doing in, in a model theoretic approach to constitutional theory is you're recognizing that when you're thinking about constitutions, you're trying to come up with a particular type of model. This is going to sound, I'll, I'll have to use the technical jargon, but I'll try my best to explain it. So when we think about models, we sometimes think about ideal types. So I, I sit down and I think, what would be the ideal form of democracy? So this is my ideal type model of democracy. And sometimes we sit down and we think about just describing what models of democracy were out there. So what is the UK's model of democracy? How does it work? What, what's, what does democracy mean in the UK? What model theoretic is trying to do is to recognize that these things have to interact with each other, that you're not being purely ideal and you're not being purely empirical, purely descriptive, of kind of giving a heuristic model that's just explaining what's going on. What you're doing is you've got what we call a constructed type. So the idea is that there are values that you want to promote and that you try and justify why you think these are valuable. And you come up with a model that tries to um, achieve those values or at least find out if those values are being achieved in a particular system. And you recognize that any model you produce rests on assumptions. So your job is to think about, okay, I want to come up with a dialogue model. So what am I doing? Well, I want to promote certain values in the UK constitution, and I want to look at interactions between institutions to see if these interactions produce these values. So to do that, I'll have my model about what I think is important. So promoting deliberative democracy, protecting rights, promoting sort of accessibility, all those kinds of um, elements, and then I'll go away and say, I'm applying it to human rights, so wouldn't it be good if we also had hey, good human rights outcomes? So let's put that in as well. And then I'll say, well, okay, if this is going to work, it's going to rest on various assumptions about what's going on in the UK, for example. So I'll have to test it and say, is it the case that parliaments do deliberate about rights and think about the ins and outs of how they balance different interests in certain circumstances? Is it the case that courts will look at specific cases and look at long-standing past principles and check to see if a general rule has undermined one of these long-standing principles or doesn't apply to a particular individual in a certain way? Because these are assumptions that I'm making about how courts and parliaments reason. So I have to test them and I have to look about what they're doing. And then I'll go away and say, well, how is this actually working in practice? Are they interacting in a way that is producing the values I want? Are we getting good human rights decisions? Are we facilitating democracy? If not, why not? Is it because my model doesn't work? Or is it because my assumptions on which it's rest, on which it rests, are also not working? So 
being model theoretic in a sense is just a, a posh way of saying be upfront about your assumptions on which your understanding of the constitution is based be upfront about your values when you go away and look at what's going on think about what it's telling you is it telling you your assumptions don't work in which case your model might work but you need to tweak your assumptions or is it telling you your model just doesn't work in which case you're going to have to rethink and think about how best to come up with these values but it's also being upfront about why you think something is valuable and not just hiding it so my model is trying to facilitate deliberative democracy because i think that is valuable so it's getting back to alexandra's point about if you if you don't agree with that well at least i'm not talking across purposes and you're aware that you'll have a different value so you might not necessarily think my theory is any good but at least then you're being upfront about those values so you're not talking across purposes so am i correct in seeing the model theoretic approach as not committed to any particular theory of constitution yep. instead it sim simply emphasizes the need for agreeing on the common language we're going to speak about uh, mm. about uh, constitutional matter or agreeing on uh, the mm. language we are talking about today about the constitution so to say or finding um, syntactic really um the, the, the syntactic uh, which we are mm -hmm. all transparent about um before we even proceed to mm. substantive matters and substantive discussion okay. about the constitution, we are so to say agreeing on um, the the approach we're taking, so we mm. can have a meaningful meaningful discussion. Yeah. Is that is yeah. that right? <laughs> it's, it's it's partly right. So it it is about being careful and explaining what you're doing in order to facilitate um, interactions between different theorists with different models. If that makes sense. But it's not purely about um, just giving an interpretation, if that makes sense. So it's not just about let's all use the word democracy in the same way or let's all use the word human rights in the same way. It recognises that there can be a plurality of understandings of what we might mean by democracy or what we might mean by human rights. But it's being upfront about which one you are using and why. So it doesn't make a particular assertion that this conception of democracy is the best conception of democracy or the conception of democracy you find in the UK. Instead, it says, here is a conception of democracy that I'm going to be using because I think it's valuable and this is why I think it's valuable. Okay. Then I go away and say, okay, let's test my model of democracy. This is how I think it's going to work. Does it actually explain what's going on in the UK? Okay. Is it a good way of explaining what's going on in the UK? If it's not, if how I would predict things would happen is not what's happening and it's not producing the values I want, is that because I've got my assumptions wrong or because my model doesn't actually produce these values? And there's still the ability for someone to take a step back and say, your values are rubbish, use different values. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting when you when you start to talk about models in, in more general terms because to mm. me uh one of the disciplines where models are well vastly used is economics right so mm. yes it's 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 very 
it's very easy to marry yourself to that assumption that if you calculate things on, a, on the basis of you know both your assumptions or your mm-hmm. rational uh, inquiry or or things that happened in the past, then surely things that have to happen the way you want them to happen, right? Yeah. And there are people who really die for like they are willing to burn. Mm-hmm defending their own model which may be flawed and maybe you know doesn't take into account things like randomness doesn't take into account things like you know it's it's actually human life it's not mm-hmm. mathematics yeah so i think that that really says something about the nature of social sciences and the nature of mm-hmm. humanities so dealing with again law in the legal sector or you know mm-hmm. even extending it to politics right it must be quite it must be quite hard to develop a model that you would never revise really yeah yeah because everything is so subjective mm. and well not everything but many things have mm. you know different meanings right yeah so it would be the deliberation should technically be almost constant and we should technically yeah. almost at all times be vigilant mm-hmm. to things that other people say that may improve our own model yeah exactly and, and, and that, that's it. And I, much easier explained than I try to do it, Alexandra. Can we use your expression? Can they quit, copyright it quickly before I start stealing it? Oh, but, it is, but it is exactly that kind of um, understanding. Is that this is how science works. Scientists are constantly discovering things and refining their models in the light of what they discover. And I think I don't see anything different in a sense that when we're thinking at things like social sciences, but I think we still have to do the same thing. I think somehow we, it, it's almost as if once you set a model, if you then turn around and say, oh, actually I've done some work and I think I might need to tweak it. Somehow this is terrible. Oh my goodness, you must be the world's worst social scientist ever. You, you've disproved your own model. And you think, well, no, I've, I've refined it. Isn't that a good thing? That I'm open and honest about the fact that this bit might not work. So let's improve it and make it better. Just, just to the point which Alexandra made earlier on, how many mm. academics are actually truly willing to revise their own positions, or perhaps we are all um, guilty of confirmation bias and uh, mm. hobby uh, horses uh, of all si- of all yeah. uh, kinds. It's very sometimes mm. it's very hard to admit to your own yeah. mistakes. Mm. Uh, so how do we uh, cross this psychological barrier uh, that uh, model theoretical approach imposes on us? Uh, would, you give, would you give an academic an advice of, of how to deal <laughs> with their uh, blind commitment um, to, to their own uh, projects? And, and also, also adding to that, it's harder to revise your own assumptions than it is to revise a model. Yeah. So I, I, I think a major difficulty there is going to be mm. with distinguishing between the model not working mm. and your assumptions Absolutely. being incorrect. Yeah, I, I think I, I wish I could give you advice other than recognizing that we all fail. Um, and uh, the, <laughs> the title of this, pro- the title of this we episode all fail. <laughs> great isn't it we all fail deal with it um i think it but i think it's i think beckett beckett once advised to if you failed uh think about it again and perhaps you can even fail better better. (laughs) exactly exactly you know (laughs) but it's i I think it's i think it's 
very, very difficult in academia because we, we're dependent on our own reputations. It, it's so dependent on what was your last paper like? Was it any good? And that it's so, so confirmation bias is a security blanket. It's very, very hard to accept that maybe that was a false assumption. Maybe that theory didn't work. And I wish I had an easy answer. And, and I wish I was perfect at it. I'm not. I think we all have confirmation bias because I think at the end of the day, we're all academics trying to build our own reputations in a sense. And it's not easy. And Sorry. we all feel like imposters, or at least I do. So <laughs> mm, I suppose that's true of all human beings, not just academics. Mm -hmm. I made made a simplification here, <laughs> but uh, especially in politics that we were so we're trying avoid talking about. Uh, I think I think uh, once you um, adopted a certain political stand mm. um, yeah. on Facebook or Instagram, or it's yeah. very hard to admit yeah. at some point that Be you were actually wrong. Yeah. And and never um, never join social media. That's my one piece of advice. <laughs> I, I have no Twitter account and I'm not setting one up. There is fantastic work being done on, on the art of persuasion. So uh, for mm. a long time, uh, what was But it's believed... on Twitter only, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it oh, was... well, I won't have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> it was believed that you would get the, uh, the people who would be, face any opposition to their own views would double down on the views. It actually turns out that it's not true. So it's easier to change mm. people's minds than we think. We just need to know how, how it's done. Yeah. And that really brings us back to where we started, mm. which is education, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. educating people both to admit, admit yeah. defeat, um, mm. but also yeah. revise their own views mm. and sometimes yeah. just speak up and, yeah. you know, being curious yeah. about the world, exactly. yeah. uh, which it's, I think is. Yeah. Yeah. So encouraging intellectual curiosity and recognizing that spotting a, an error and correcting is a strength, not a weakness. Hmm. But easy to say. Say that to a to and say that to the perfectionist, and and we nothing ever is going to get published ever. Yeah, but, I don't know. I've yeah, I, I I suffer for that too. I don't like. I hate reading anything I've written because I'll spot mistakes and go, no, this should never have been published. So on that note. I mean, unless you have any other questions. Yeah, well, on that on that note, I just wanted to come back uh, to the point which uh, which uh, Alison was trying to make in response to your point earlier on. I forgot what uh, it was. I forgot yeah, what I think, it was. We were <laughs> talking about, uh, we, I think we put a pin in the, you can never ever in the UK talk about the constitution without using the word Miller. It, it, it's, it, it's a new rule. So um, I'm afraid Alexandra uh, raised the Miller card and played the Miller card, um, in particular from the kind of perspective of the kind of trying to understand the court's boundaries, if that makes sense, and what the court is doing those kinds of cases, and how does the court make sure it's sticking to legal arguments, not collapsing into political arguments, and and trying to kind of tread that line of saying, well, this is. A legal hard line this isn't deliberative this isn't something that's up for grabs anymore this is a legal hard line and it's the way the courts will reason in this sense is it's a specific way of reasoning which isn't necessarily perfect but which does limit the court from getting involved in politics if that makes sense so um common law reasoning is abductive so it's working on an element of looking at past cases, 
trying to find themes and from that not coming up with necessarily the right objectively right principles but is deducing principles that run through a particular system where well, there's a really really strong case for arguing this is a principle that runs through our particular constitution and the only way they can kind of limit themselves and stop falling into politics is to use that kind of reasoning process like it's not perfect it's not ideal but that discipline of having to go back find a case look at these cases find connections between the cases find principles underpinning those cases and recognizing that again it can be reasonable to disagree about them and you in the end of the day the court is going to have to take an authoritative determination as to which of these interpretations of past case law is the most persuasive and i'd love to say it's 100 perfect and watertight it's not but in a constitution where you've got a legislature that can turn around and say well thank you for that court court case but here's some legislation in response to it then i don't i think the dangers of it being you potentially drawing on principles that don't necessarily match what democratically elected individuals think or the principles of the constitution are less dangerous than in a system where it can completely have a democratic override so that's, that's my my best way of suggesting courts aren't being political <laughs> <laughs> i'll sign up to it um <laughs> people will disagree with me it's okay <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Amelia, is there anything else? Well, uh, this is typically the, the moment in our podcasts when I say uh, that I'm mindful of time <laughs> and, and, that, and, that we should, uh, and that we should ask um, our um, five um, standard questions mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we... Everybody's dreading, yeah. Everyone, <laughs> we, these are dreading. the ones we dread the most. I mean, this is why I've been so chatty earlier in the vague hope that you've run out of time. It almost worked. <laughs> <laughs> so who or what was your biggest inspiration in your career okay I'm, I'm gonna have to go for two things and they are my students and my um academic colleagues and, and phd supervisors so there you are what do you wish you could tell your graduate student self stop reading start thinking <laughs> There you go. Very, very succinct. That's going to be the to title. Too many, too many things. So stop reading. Start thinking. This is excellent advice. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> about to say yes. I wish I, I, I said this to my myself uh, long ago. <laughs> There's still I, time. I still need to tell myself <laughs> that. Don't worry. <laughs> and if you could only read one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? This I can't answer. I'm sorry. I like too many books. I'm, I'm terrible. So um, if, if, if I'm being, if, if you're absolutely forcing me to choose, it's either going to be the collected works of Jane Austen or the collected works of Neil Stevenson or the collected works of Margaret Atwood. One of those. There you are. I can't even do collected works, Dan. I'm terrible. I read too much. I, uh, I quite like the fact that there is no no political theory book cited here. I'm reading for pleasure. <laughs> if, if you abandon me with one book, I, I'm going to I'm going to use it for fun. I'm not going to use it for political theory. <laughs> if you had not been an academic, what alternative career would you have chosen? Okay, probably. Don't laugh. Either a dancer or a primary school teacher. 
We haven't had those answers before. Uh, I didn't think so. <laughs> uh, finish this sentence. One thing no one talks about in academia is imposter syndrome. There you are. <laughs> short and it's like, I try to go for short in the bank if I get away with them. It's so it I, I, hit hard. Um, <laughs> this one. <laughs> I stunned you into silence. No, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's something we all feel at some time, but we don't like admitting to it. I don't think all of us. I think yes, there, a there, lot there of are some who don't, and I wish they did. Yeah. <laughs> I think on International Women's Day, it's probably fair to say that we've made great progress in battling imposter syndrome. Mm. But when we think about legal theory and how few women are in this field who are not, you know, feminist legal scholars or don't sign up to uh, sign up to like academic, um, analytic philosophy uh, mm. it's hard not to have that imposter yeah. syndrome because yeah. you constantly feel like you have to do so much more to mm. justify yeah. your presence there right yeah I think so and I think it's 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 really dangerous because you do you'll then overwork if that makes sense so you you'll constantly worry about I can't send so it's back to your point about perfectionism I can't send this in it's not perfect yet I can't apply for this job because I won't be good enough. Um, I can't apply for this scholarship because they'll never give it to me because I'm just the imposter. I'm not supposed to be here. And I think it, it holds a lot of individuals back. Women, yes. I think people from ethnic minorities, people from you know, working class backgrounds like myself will, will just feel I'm not supposed to be here. And I think we need to be much more upfront and discuss those elements. And trying to get that balance between accepting you have a right to be in academia and you have a valid voice without becoming an egomaniac. There you are. <laughs> How do you get that balance? I think is really important. I really hope that uh, those who are with us uh, still at this podcast will take <laughs> this message seriously. And um, especially uh, female academics um, who uh, are not um, as um, brave sometimes to speak up mm. and to express their ideas um, and be heard. So um, thank you so uh, yeah, much. I, just, I literally yeah. just thought about you know, the Oxford Four and how men yeah. had to literally leave to go to war. <laughs> yeah, mm. so, so, so um, mm. the, the, the female scholars at Oxford obviously uh, only felt mm. they can speak up mm. when all the men went to war mm. uh, and that yeah. was the only occasion where they yeah. had the courage to do so mm. why would anyone ever mm. be in the position mm. to, to to have to say that yeah no, it, it's, it's sad and it and it's I, I'd love to say it, it doesn't happen but it does a mansplaining is a thing and the, the amount of that things I've had mansplained to me uh, I think my favourite was someone explained to me how Oxford works. I think I've, I've been here for 20 years, mate. I think I know. But you have to kind of listen as they mansplain the entire system to you. And you just nod because it's, just, yeah. It helps <laughs> if you're blonde too, you know. I, feel like I, really yeah, I know help. nothing. I, 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 I know absolutely nothing. And I look younger than I am, which I think also doesn't help. So yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm clearly useless. And if I, if, I, if I don't have my, this is my fake accent. This is not my real accent. I had to lose it. So if I have my real accent as well, you've got you've got no chance. I will be completely, I completely shouldn't be here. And you know, they'll probably just hand me rubber gloves and point me to the toilets. You know? <laughs> uh, 
I wish I wish I, I have asked you to to uh, take to adopt your real accent in this podcast. My real accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what you want me to say. <laughs> uh, well, now probably nothing anymore because the uh, the, the podcast uh, comes to an end. Goodbye. Oh, <laughs> you, you want to know what, I sound, what my my real accent sounds like? I'm Sean Bean. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. That's okay. the Sheffield accent. There you are. Okay. The other one is Jarvis, Jarvis Corker, who went to the same school as me. So that's bang on, not only Sheffield, but the specific area of Sheffield. Whereas Sean Bean's Handsworth, which is next to where I come from, but not the same. Very well, cool. well, now, now I'm glad I didn't ask him. <laughs> you would understand me, yeah. <laughs> to, to meaningfully communicate uh, yeah, it, and it, adopt, adopt the paradigm, accent. and adopt the yeah. paradigm that, that we can jointly uh, progress through this uh, podcast. Uh, so, Alison, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. And uh, we wish you uh, all the best with your uh, constitutional educational project um, and um, all the best in your academic uh, endeavors and uh, your overall uh, career. And we will make a shameless plug as well in, in the links later. <laughs> so for anybody listening, it's going to be in the description. Oh, excellent. Well, well, thank you to both of you for inviting me. This is a fantastic project and I wish you um, every success with it. Thank you, Thank so you very much. much. Hi, it's Alexander here. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like our project, have any questions, or would like to recommend a guest or a topic, drop us a line on just.theory.project at gmail.com. This season was made possible with the generous funding of Newcastle University. If you like, you can buy us a coffee. Your support will enable us to continue our work. Just theory. Changing the face of legal theory.